morning, John. It's Johnny Brick. How are you? Yeah, good, good, good. I am delighted. I'm just going to give me quite a grilling. I'm not sure uh, I'm interesting enough to carry on for an hour. No, still. you. I think Try you are. Squeeze it out of me. There is definitely a difference between people I talk to who are broadcasters, who mm. are paid to say words, and those mm. who write words. I, yeah, I think yeah. it's the backspace button. It mm. re- you really can tell when you're talking to a writer because they're very choosy when it comes <laughs> to the words. It's, it's like a Rolodex. Do you have that when you're writing these pieces? Do you say, no, not that word, not that word, not that word? Yeah, oh, that's well, the I, I have t- t- the two posts. Most important books in my life are the English Dictionary and uh, Roger's Thesaurus. Yeah, I so, remember. Um, I'm I'm very I love words and um, and I, I sort of always have been uh, uh, liked words particularly. I make notes of them and I can remember when certain words came into my vocabulary. For example, reading um, Sebastian Fox's book, uh, you know, Birdsong. Yes. I, do you know what I remember it first for? Most for. As he used the word lambent at one stage. Oh, yeah. Lick it. it sounds like it means. I remember uh, Peter Capaldi read yeah, yeah, the, the, the guy Kenny. Who played Doctor Who. Yes, he read Kenny Dalglish's uh, autobiography, the audiobook, and he yep. used the word camaraderie. And I think it was because of how he said it that I always remembered that word. And, uh, yeah, yeah Can you spell so it? There's how, many a... e's, how many A's and how many E's? There's a lot of camaraderie, camaraderie. <laughs> In when footballers were skinned, a journey in search of the soul of football, and yeah. you found it. Uh, I'm going to have to ask you who's on the front cover of the book because I don't immediately recognise yeah, it. Yeah, well, I, I have trouble remembering his name, and I can look it up very quickly. Go ahead. Everton. It's Everton at Goodison Park. Beginning with H. It's something like Dave. Dave Holton. No, not quite that. He was a centre forward for uh, Everton, and he's mentioned by McNamara, who played with him. Roy Dave. Hartle, Derek Hennin, David Dave. Hurd, Dave Hickson. Dave Hickson. Dave Hickson. Of Everton, yeah. Yeah, I'll just turn to page 171. And um, that, he, he's, mentioned, he, he's mentioned just because McNamara um, remembers playing with him. I think they were involved in a goal for Everton or something like that. I can't remember exactly. Mm-hmm. And he is, it's a wonderful photo, and it certainly caught my attention. When I, I yeah. remember seeing this book for the first time. I think it was either in Piccadilly or Richmond. Yeah. And okay. the book came out in hardback in 2018. That's right. Paperback 2019. It's not your first rodeo because you've also written three books. And before we talk about When Footballers Were Skint, yeah. uh, which is the award-nominated book, um, yeah. there are three more. And yeah. they seem to centre on the past, as books yeah. tend to do unless they're science fiction. I know very little about Fred Perry, but I do know that um, he had the the fashion brand named after him, and it yeah. is the answer to the pub quiz question before Andy Murray, which British male won Wimbledon last? So what attracted you to writing about Fred Perry is your first book. I got a telephone call out of the blue in about 2007, 2008, uh, from a literary agent um, asking me to go and see him, and... I was sort of thinking what he probably wanted me to do was go to book on a footballer or something. But I went to see him and he said, do you fancy writing a a biography of Fred Perry, who's never really had a biography written about him before? And um, the reason he'd rung, got in touch with me and written to me was because he'd read my Tennis in the Observer. So I was approached, really, for that was my first book, 
Well, although it wasn't the first book that I had published, because while I was uh, writing the Fred Perry biography, because I, I was tennis correspondent of the Observer at that stage, Yellow Jersey Press, which is the imprint of uh, sporting imprint of uh, Random House, they asked me if I'd write a book about um, sporting heroes. So I fitted that in before I finished the Perry book. So you'll see on my, my CV of books, there's also a thing called Best of British Hendo Sporting Heroes. Yes, absolutely so right. That was, the fir- that was the first one I had published, but I, I, I wrote it while I was researching and writing the Fred Perry book. Yeah, like, um, a, like how at Oxford University people have to write three essays in a fortnight, which rather put me <laughs> off when I learned that. I thought, well, I'm glad I didn't get a place there. <laughs> Which university did you get a place at? I went, well, I got a place at Manchester within about three days. I also turned them down. I turned down Nottingham and Birmingham and went to Edinburgh. Okay, very nice. Which was, well, apart from it being, I I wrecked a pair of trainers within six weeks because I walked everywhere and I wasn't used to that. But no, Edinburgh is fantastic. But I did live for a couple of years in Rains Park and Merton. So, uh, yeah, yeah. very well, close r- r- to SW19, where you worked for, well, it would have been three weeks, two weeks or three weeks. Well, of weeks course, that was, that was much nearer to where the first sort of 20 or 30 Wimbledons were played, mm-hmm. Rains Park. It was just down there that the Wimbledon Championships were first played. Werple Road, they, the um, first Wimbledons were played. Was it? Re- I know it- that road very well. Wow. Uh, that, road, that was up until about 1920-something, I think. Well, this was the, the amateur era. Were you... Oh, the amateur era didn't end until 1961. Yeah. No, shockingly late. I, and I, the open era. Why is it called the open era? Well, the it's called era. the open era because anybody can play at Wimbledon, whether, you, whether you're a professional or an amateur. Oh, uh, yeah. Although I suppose nowadays okay. it is See, all up, up until Up until 1961, only amateurs were allowed to play. So, for example, if you look at the career of Rod Laver, the great Rod Laver, the Rockhampton Rocket from Australia... He won Wimbledon in, I think, 1951, turned professional, and so was banned. But then in 1961, when uh, professionals were were admitted to uh, Wimbledon and to all tennis tournaments, Labour won Wimbledon again. So Labour would probably have won 10 Wimbledons in a row if he hadn't... uh, if he hadn't turned professional. I think, um, so we should put an asterisk next to his name. And very interestingly, 1961 is a big year, as we'll is. come to, for football. Yeah. Fred Perry, for example, he won three Wimbledons. For, my memory is so bad, even, uh, say, 33, 34, 35. And then he turned professional. That's why he, he didn't win any Wimbledons after the age of about, whatever he was, 26 or something. So he earned all his money on the circuit. In America, they'd started a professional circuit. There was a guy called, uh, what was he, Pyle was his surname, and he was called Cash and Carry Pyle for some <laughs> reason. And he'd started a, a circuit, a professional circuit in um, North America. Rather than tournaments, what he did, he got the two best players in the world to, to play against each other, and uh, they, they would tour around and play at about 70 or 80 venues around America, um, the two best players in the world. And it, it was sort of like exhibition tennis. But Perry made a made a very good living that way because the point about Perry was he he was he was actually he was the first probably the first working class tennis player ever to make um, an impact because it it had been a posh boy sport really up until he came along and it was it says so much about Perry who was such an alpha male 
that he was able as, as, a, as a working class grammar school boy to break into the the ranks of the professional player, uh, the top amateur players. So would he have had respect from the working class footballers? He, well, he trained with Arsenal for a lot, a long time. He was the first, he was the first tennis player to take uh, training seriously. Uh, up until then, it was considered rather... Um, you know, rather infradig to train for tennis. You turned up and played, and he. But he started to take ser- tennis seriously and mm. and trained with Arsenal. There are lots of pictures of him with the Arsenal players. Would he have been training with Dennis Compton? Therefore, or was he, he a bit he before? Probably. I'm just trying to think how old Dennis Compton was. A slightly younger, yeah. I think, than. Um, so I suspect they didn't overlap. No, I, I'm just trying to remember what Dennis... I knew Dennis reasonably well for a while. I was just trying to think when he finished playing. But no, I don't, I don't think they would have overlapped. No, although that would have been a great... Um, mm. been an ITV series. But uh, <laughs> you, you insert yourself into the story because you, in the 1960s, start yeah. writing for the North Hans Evening Telegraph. Telegraph, yeah, that's right which is right. in the days when you had to learn shorthand and That's you could right. become a cub reporter. I call it the Mike Calvin School of Journalism. You come out of school at 15. or When did you leave school? Well, I, I didn't leave school till 18. Okay, but so I, have... I knew, I'd known for some years that I wanted to be a sports writer and I didn't go to university or anything like that because I knew that in those days there weren't any, there were virtually no course, if, if any sort of university or or courses in journalism, the only way you really got into journalism was to manage to get yourself an, an indenture, indentured onto a provincial paper, which I got indentured three years. You had to spend, well, you do six months and then three years as a an indentured uh, reporter. Is that court reporting? And Well, everything, everything. Reporting. Everything you had to do, court report. Although I, I, start, I went straight in doing sport... I worked on the sports desk. I, I had to I had to go court reporting. I was only thinking the other day, actually, I can remember being terrified going into a court <laughs> to report, which, um, you know, and all, all, all the pomp and ceremony of, 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 uh, of a high court, um, or what they call them, the assize court. Yes. The judges were very uh, sort of uh, domineering sort of people. If you got out of back of the bullseyes underneath the reporter's desk, he'd hear the paper rustle mm. and have you sent out. Yeah, have a big breakfast. I know that in, well, my local paper, the Watford Observer, had Ollie Phillips yeah. as its sports yeah. guru, whom you may have come across. No, I think I know one or two people who were. This guy called Mike Collett, do you know of him? Uh, I do know the name, yes. Yeah, Tottenham, big Tottenham Hotspur fan, wrote the definitive book on the FA Cup. Yes, if yes. he's a good person for you to talk to, he's got a stack of tales. <laughs> oh, yes. I imagine when I talk to Brian Glanville, I'll need a weekend. Haven't you spoken to Brian Glanville yet? No, I, I'm building up to him. I mean, I've spoken to 110 people, yeah. and I think about 150 I'll be ready to take on. Yeah, you, 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 well, you'd have, you'll have to hurry, because he's quite an age. But um, 90 this year. To, he loves to talk, so he won't have much trouble. With Are you, do with... you live near him? Does he live in West London? Uh, I, I'm not quite. He, he famously had that Chelsea t- team, didn't he? I think he possibly still plays for it, the Chelsea Wanderers or something. Mm. Was there ever a time that one of the players of Rushton, as they were in those days, yeah. uh, would phone you up and say, "Why are you writing this bilge about me and the team?" Um, I covered Rushton Town for one season when I joined the paper in 1964. 
But then I got promoted to Kettering and um, the head office in Kettering and covered Kettering Town for the next two or three seasons. Did you get and some boots? I got some, yeah. There was a, a particularly um, gobby Welshman called Steve Gammon who, who, had, who had played for Cardiff and I think he played, he certainly played for the Wales under-21s and he may have played some internationals for Wales, but he got his leg broken quite badly and became player-manager of um, Kettering Town in the early 60s. And he used to ring me up and give me a, a rocket um, on practically on a, on a weekly basis. Gosh, were they a fourth division team, Kettering, or a third side? No, they, they, they've never, I don't think they've ever been in the Football League. Uh, they, okay. Kettering um, were in the Southern League, but about um, 10 years ago, just or about 11 years ago, I went back to Kettering. I was working for The Guardian then, and I was just about to retire, but Kettering got into the third round and possibly even to the fourth round of the FA Cup that year, and I went up to cover them. But they've never they've never actually got into the football oh, league. I think okay. they had they had a um, a, a rather pushy uh, Asian lad who who uh, w- owned um, Kettering at that time. Was this the Gascoigne? Do you remember? Do you remember that Gascoigne yeah. was? I read a book for, about it. He the owner comes off weeks. terribly. What? The owner of Kettering comes off so terribly in what this book. Was his book. name Ladek or something yes. like that? Yes, 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 yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was under his. They were pushing. I think basically, I think he was, he was probably looking to sell Rockingham Road and get some money for the, um, yep. for the, uh, you know, the for the land, the, the building site. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so I covered Kettering Town for three about three seasons in the Southern League. There were the, that was the Southern League in those days. There wasn't a sort of overarching. There was the Northern League and the Southern League, and there wasn't a sort of uh, 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 overarching like the Vanarama National League at the moment in those days. Mm. And then when did you move on to Reuters? Well, that, that's uh, quite an interesting... Well, not, not interesting to me, probably not interesting to you. But um, I'd done, as I mentioned, I'd done, my, I'd done my six months in 1964, and then I'd done my three years um, uh, of my uh, indentured. I was indentured for three years. And um, I, that, so I ended in I ended in '68, April '68, I think it was that I ended my indentures. And I, that year was the Mexico Olympics, and I said to myself, "Whatever happens, I'm going to go to the Mexico Olympics as a freelance." So I, I remember going into the editor of um, North Ham's Evening Telegraph. How was his surname? I forget what his first name was, and saying, um, "I'm." I'm leaving. And he said, no, you're bloody well not. You, you young lads, you come up here, we train you up, and you leave straight away when, when we've trained you up. And anyway, he had a big rant of me, and I, I left his room with a slight smirk on my face because I realised that, you know, he no longer had a hold over me. I'd done my three years in denture, and I was a free agent. Retain and transfer is yeah, was yeah, not, not valid at that time. <laughs> not that, not that. So I... Um, but about about two hours later, I was in the reporters' room, and um, the editor came through with a big smile on his face and just said, "Fair cop, of course you can go." And blah blah blah. <laughs> and I went down to so that was in the April, and then I got a, a summer casual working job subbing on the um, Daily Express when it was still in Fleet Street. And in the meantime, I'd gone to to Reuters to see if I could work as a freelance out there uh, during the Olympics. 
I said, I'm going to be out there. Can, can, can you give me some freelance work? And they, they said, well, I'm not sure we can do any reporting, but if you happen to be out there, we need people to be copy typists. Mm -hmm. You can come and be a copy typist. I said, okay, that's fine with me because I realized that was probably a foot in the door. And then I went on the Canberra ship to Acapulco, got a bus up to Mexico City, rang the guy in charge of the Reuter office in, in Mexico City and said, look, I'm working a bit. It was, about, it was about three or four weeks before the Olympics. And said, look, I'm, I'm gonna be in Mexico City. I'm in Mexico City uh, at a loose end. If you want me to do anything before the game start, I, I'm here. And he, he said, you, you know, you're a man from heaven because you, you're far too young to remember, but before the 1968 Olympics, there were massive student um, uh, riots yeah. and demonstrations. Croissant retards. Mm. What's his face? Con Daniel, a Frenchman called Daniel. Da Con Daniel. Benoit Cohn, is that it? Oh, in Paris. Yeah. They, they, yes, this was it. Was he involved also in, um, in Mexico City? I imagine that he... Um, Informed. He might have had, it may have been, so. I think it was more to do with local politics and possibly a sort of world movement of uh, student demonstration. Yeah, there was this, and then the flower power movement in San Francisco. Yeah, all that, all and part the of that. But anyway, the, the report, the, the, all the reporting staff in Mexico City, Reuters, were, had their hands full covering the student riots. I mean, they've, they've never established how many people were killed, but they were, it ran into the thousands, I think, of students who were killed during the riots. And so the Reuters bureau chief said, look, um, you just get down to the Olympic Village and start filing stories. So I went down there and I spent the rest of the whole of the Olympic Games reporting. I think I did one afternoon of copy taking and the rest of the time I was reporting. Including, including, I remember going down to the first day of the athletics, you know, the first day of the athletics. And so there were all sorts of um, sort of qualifying events going on. It was the men's high jump qualifying. And I was sort of lazily looking out over the stadium and watched this guy run up to the bar. Yeah. And to my eye, he slipped, but <laughs> but but, but um, managed to right himself and went over the bar on his back. And, and that I, was I, it. And I, I put the ha my hand on the on the shoulder of the guy next to me. And I said, "Did you see that?" And he was an American journalist. And he said, "Where are you been?" That's Dick Fosbury. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never seen him because this, in fact, was the first time. He'd actually performed as a big public meeting. I mean, he'd been doing the Fosbury flop in, in, in training and in minor meetings, but he'd never really been seen in public. So the Americans knew all about him, but some greenhorn like me turning up had no idea what was going on. This was the era when I was thinking about this with music. There were American bands who just yeah. wouldn't travel and UK acts who wouldn't travel. And yeah. so it was completely novel when novelty could hit you around the face, whereas now yeah. a novelty hits you through a phone screen. So yeah. you're, you're reporting in 68. Um, yeah. The big event was the Black Power salute. Well, I was, I was on that story, in fact. That was my I remember going, going to the American um, delegation's hotel, try and do a bit of doorstepping and talking, and I was up on the third floor. I, I knew where the American delegation was, and I was on the coming up the stairs to, to where they were meeting and I was standing on the stairs and then one of the American delegation came out and started screaming and shouting at me and accusing me of um, having my ear to the uh, door and trying to listen. He was in fact the guy who'd won the 10,000 metres, I can't remember his name at the previous Olympics in Tokyo. 
he was an American Indian, I think, Red Indian, as it, or Native American, as they now call them. Then it was soon after that, of course, that they um, they were expelled from from Mexico, uh, Mexico by the, and we got that story. Me and another guy were reporting on that story, and um, but of course they were eventually lionized as, as they should have been. The, those two. Um, and so, yes, that was right. And there was also the other big, big thing at that Olympics was uh, what's his face jumping out of the long jump pit. You know, the guy, the American long jumper who broke Lewis? the world record by a foot or something. Wells? No. Hmm? Bill? I'll have to look it, it is, up. It's just, it's just raided. And off the back of that, you know, up until then, there, was no, there wasn't such a thing as a photographic agency, I don't think. And there was a schoolmaster Beeman. there. What? Bob, Bob Beeman. Beeman. Yeah. Bob, Bob Beeman, Obviously. that's right. Bob Beeman practically jumped out of the pit. That was the other amazing story. But of course, they, they think because of the thin air in um, Mexico, yeah. that helped it. But, but it, it, I think it's only been broken twice or something since. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so yeah, those were great games. Those were great games. And then I, um, I, so I was a freelance, but Reuters had said that when I got back to America from uh, Mexico, because I, being a freelance, I then got a bus back down to Mexico. Uh, to Acapulco and got a got a um, a ship back from there and arrived back in December I think because they were quite late in the year those Olympics but mm. I always remember being in a staying in a really run down hotel in Acapulco and I, I'd run out of money I was telling the guy in that this run down hotel that you know watch out I'm going to do a runner here because I haven't got any money I, I said I've been promised money by Reuters but I haven't they haven't given it to me and so I'm in a fix here. But anyway, I kept telling him this. I was going to do a runner and et cetera, et cetera. And then I came in one evening and he said, hey, reach man. And I said, piss off. He said, no, reach man. <laughs> no, 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 you know the story. And he said, and he handed me a telegram that had come from Reuters saying there's something like 300 bucks down in the, um, which in that in those days <laughs> was you. down in the Bank Bank America down in the town. And so I was, he got paid and I, and I came back with a little bit of folding money in my pocket. Very good. And then uh, 1970, the World Cup was in Mexico. Were you there or did you... No, I wasn't for that. I was, at the, I, was for the, I was there for the 86 one. Oh. Uh, the hand of God. So I was running the Reuter Bureau, not the Reuter main bureau. I was running at the press centre in uh, at the Mexico Olympics. Hey, we haven't got all day, by the way, because I've got to go to the dentist, which is rather terrifying me, because he's going to pull a root out. Um, <gasps> but still, um, so it would, the Hand of God goal had taken place. But that, the, the day after the Hand of God goal, um, I was wondering how we were going to follow it up, the story. And, and there was a very nice guy called Rex Gower, who was a Spanish speaker, being brought up in Argentina. I said to Rex, go down to the Argentine you know, HQ and find out what they're saying about the goal. In fact, when Diego Maradona um, died recently, Rex, Rex, he was quoted, Rex, for the, his, his version of the story I'm about to tell you, which is my version. And anyway, I said to Rex, go down to the... Um, go down to the uh, Argentine HQ and have a word with them about, you know, for some follow-up story. And he was very casual, sort of laid back, very nice guy. And he comes back and he comes into the Reuter office in the press centre and he's chatting with all his mates at the other end of the office and I'm standing there starting to chew the end of a pencil because I want to get a story off him. And I call across to him and say, look, Rex, so what, what do they say? What do they say? And he said, oh, he got out his notebook and started flicking through it. Said, so, oh, they said this, oh, they said that. Partly the hand of God and partly the hand of Maradona. Oh. And I said, he's, 
And I said, he said, what, Rex? And, and sat down and immediately bashed that story out and put it on the wire, put it out, of course, on, on, on the international wire. Well, look, fast forward to the next morning and I come into the press center and the, uh, my oppo at um, Associated Press, AP, came rushing up to me, foaming at the foot mouth. Uh, it's a guy called Warshaw. He's Andy Warshaw, who has been done quite a lot of football writing. And Andy Warshaw comes up in, in the UK. He's a British writer, actually. And he says, they never said it, John. They never said it. He, he never said it. He never said it. Uh, hang on, calm down, Andy. Who never said what? Maradona, he never said uh, that the hand of God, you know, it's partly the hand of Maradona and partly the hand of God. I, I said, it's on the Reuters wire, and no one's complained about it, Andy. So I think um, whatever he may or may not have said, I think it, uh, it's, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Rex tells a slightly different, it may basically they're, they're the same, but Rex, I forget where his story, you'll probably, you can find it online if you want, it slightly differs from mine, but that's how I remember it. And it, yeah, and that and it got picked up around the world, and it's cemented oh, well, the I'm myth of Maradona. On the Reuter wire. I, I, what I'm not absolutely certain about is whether that was the first time it had been out there. I, I think it hadn't been. I think the quote hadn't been circulated before that, because I remember some Fleet Street guys coming into the office and saying, you know, what's this thing? What's this about? Uh, you know, the hand of God and showing them the story on the, the wire, etc. No one ever says with the second goal it was the foot of God, because the second goal is outstanding. The first yeah, goal was uh, a bit of naughty. But no, then... well, I, I tell you, I can remember clearly. We, well, I was in the, I was in, as I say, in the bureau uh, in in Mexico City, with with a couple of other uh, reporters, and I can remember when the hand of God goal got went in, we all stood up and applauded because we didn't see it, nobody saw it there wasn't, there wasn't the, the only thing we, you know, Shilton of course ran after the referee and said you know, was pointing at uh, his hand and saying, but generally speaking the um, opinion well, I'm pretty certain I've got this right was that it was, was a goal and there wasn't it, it quick, quickly died down the protests of the English players and they didn't have much of an impact and I remember then Maradona um, scoring the second goal, and us all leaping out of our chairs and saying, "Whoa, what a goal!" Yeah. So, so I, I, I have a clear memory of, of that second goal as well, which, of course, is a is a fantastic leaving about three England defenders on the seat of the pants, and it, no, that was that was. That was um, no, brilliant. and he was for the, the, all the obituaries said that at that time when he won the World Cup, well, yeah. there were ten others, but it was mostly him. He was oh, yeah. the best player in the world, and I don't know if you've seen the uh, Asif Kapadia film, Diego Maradona. I, I haven't, actually. I know all about it, but I haven't. Yeah, um, which it's in the football library, by the way, because there is a yeah. DVD collection, as well as okay. every book and every programme and every fanzine and yeah. a little DOS lounge. The football library... I, was, I, still, I still maintain that Pele is the best player there's ever been, having watched him a bit too. Oh, really? I would, I would, I would place, place Pele above... Above Maradona. Well, I'm above. far too young, but I think Cruyff goes beyond both of them. Ah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're all entitled to our own opinion. I feel more we? of an affinity with Cruyff because I've fallen out with loads of people and I, I start a fight in an empty room with myself. <laughs> yeah. but if you're looking at Pele, was probably the goal scorer that reinvented goal scoring. Maradona reinvented he the number 10. such a sublime mover. That's what I, I... I was such a sublime mover in his feints and footwork and... 
And the trouble is with Pele, of course, that, that it's a bit like trying to look at some of the old cricketers, because cricket is really my, my numero uno sport. There's so much of the footage was destroyed in those days, and there's, there's precious little, really, footage of Pele, given, given I mean, his extraordinary performance of the 1948 World Cup the 17-year-old or whatever he was, and just right through and the, the, the uh, abominable treatment he got in 1966 yeah. in England. Um, he got kicked out, uh, kicked out of the World Cup. Yeah, yeah. And, no, uh, but for me, he is. You're, you're, you're perfectly, Cruyff was a fantastic player, you're absolutely right. Well, in my lifetime, I enjoyed watching Burkamp, Cantona, I felt an affinity with. I just think the last 10 years of top-level elite football yeah, the players are better, but it's more like watching geopolitics. It's like watching uh, Doctor Strangelove. You're not watching uh, football. You're watching mercenaries who are very skillful. Yes, I, I take your point, yeah. but I wouldn't let that get in the way of your admiration of them, quite frankly, because uh, I do think Messi and, and Ronaldo are just extraordinarily good players. Yeah, they're, they're very and good worthy, at their jobs. They're not very good at paying tax, but they're what? very no, no, good no, at playing no. football. <laughs> Well, in those days, when in the days when footballers were skint, there wasn't so much tax to pay. Although no, no. Some, some of the some of the, the Brazilians received receiving a lot of money in 1950 when um, some of the other countries weren't treating their players as badly as England were in terms of remuneration. Oh yeah, um, and you've written about that era. Riddle me this: Why haven't you written a cricket book? Is it because your day job is? Reporting uh, well, on matches um, and interviewing. Actually, my agent has asked me to do a similar a similar book to when footballers were skinned on cricketers. At the moment, I'm I'm thinking about it. The, the the point is, it's a it's it's doing a book like when footballers were skinned took me a lot of time because it was a lot of travelling, a lot of transcribing. You know, it's not something you can knock off in six months. Oh, you could do if you. But I, I, you know, getting in touch with players, setting up interviews, going off on the train to interview them, it, it, it spent a, a, a lot of admin. It's, it's a long, it was a long project. And, well, I'm 76 now and I'm not looking for long projects. <laughs> no. Uh, I, but I might do it because I do love county cricket, but particularly Somerset is my passion. And um, I love cricket. Um, in fact, we could watch a 2020, I think, on Channel 4 later today. Can't oh, we? wicked. Yeah. And I, think when does so. the... I think it's on Channel 4, isn't it? The first yeah. 2020 yeah, yeah, yeah. between... When does India the county season start? When hmm? does the first class season start? Well, it, it usually starts in April, but I'm not quite sure what the what the form is. I must um, I must examine that. I think, they've, they've, I think they've come up with a full county championship uh, fixture list, I think. But I've been meaning to look that up. You reminded me. I must look that up. Well, this is also the year of the 100. Finally, we get... A yeah. super fast kind of ADD cricket. And it's all right for some, but I think that there are two kinds of cricket. The one that I used to watch when I was pretending to revise. I would only watch yeah. cricket in May and June when yeah. I would look down at a note, look up and see an, a West Indian fast bowler take a wicket. And, head off. and then look down again. Um, <laughs> but I, I will read that book. I, maybe it'll be called When Cricketers Were Gentlemen. Yeah, well, I haven't, I haven't committed to it yet. I, I, just, I might, might suddenly decide. Well, look, this would be a very pleasant way to see out my writing years. Mm. Well, if you need but a it, transcriber, uh, I'm not doing uh, very try, much. That's right. I mean, that drives me, drives me mad. And I, I used to get typists to do it, but yeah. they mangled all the stuff. They, they couldn't hear the words or didn't understand the words. And, and so, I, in the end, you had to do it yourself. But mm. I, I think now you've got things you can just point a machine at, and yep. it'll. Um, 
it'll print it out for you, won't it? Yep, you can get smart machines. Yeah. The transcription yeah. service is, I think it's purely for, maybe it's for the military, one of those things where it started at the military level and then it mm. starts to improve the lives of professional journalists. But uh, Well, that's of course, but that's, I mean, uh, that, I was a big supporter of Hawkeye, and the guy who invented Hawkeye, he actually used to take a, uh, a feature I did in The Observer about him round um, various sporting bodies like tennis and 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 he and that technology comes from you know smart uh, uh, Israeli uh, smart weaponry. Ah, oh, yeah, about that. tracking the tr line calling is um, easy enough. You just need a few cameras on the lines, but the LBW where they track the trajectory after it's hit the pad. That is, that is, um, as I say, smart weaponry um, to, to be able to continue and to predict the trajectory beyond it striking the pad. So, incredible, um, incredible. Mm. Just like the World Wide Web was for. Um, we're and actually talking the, on the day, the twelfth of March. This was the day that the World Wide Web was. I know, infected. and and also um, the guy who's credited with it, in, inventing it um, went to school about half a mile from where I'm sitting. Oh. A manual school in um, West London. Oh wow! No, I didn't know that. Yeah, the great one of the most emotional moments of my life was the I was watching it on the telly, but the yeah. bit of the Olympic opening ceremony when it cuts to Tim Berners Lee dapping on a keyboard and it flashes up. This oh, is was for that everyone. right? Was that in 2012? Yeah. yeah. And I, th Very I thought good. that was sensational. And um, it in fact, fantastic. it was a fantastic opening ceremony, wasn't it? Alistair Campbell's eighth edition, episode eight of his diaries, is something like the fading of the Olympic spirit. And he's yeah. talking about the era of the the, the pre-Brexit era, yeah. David Cameron's Britain. But I, I tried to do as little of politics as possible. Have you? Um, would you cover the tennis at the Olympics? I never did. The thing is, I left Reuters in um, 1989. I left Reuters, and at that stage, I was more of a um, uh, an editor than a, than a uh, reporter. I did I did both the Reuters. But when the big uh, set pieces came, like the Olympics, or I used to be sort of the bureau chief in charge of the whole operation and didn't do much reporting. I'm just trying to think when the tennis it, it came in. Did it come in in 1988 in Seoul? I can't remember. Oh, oh, I can't. Yes, I, I'd completely forgotten that it wasn't an Olympic sport. I don't think 1984 oh, wow. in Los Angeles. I don't think it was an Would Olympic Becker, sport. Did Becker win it with Germany in 88? Becker, God, I remember him winning Wimbledon. He almost won it the year before. In, in when he was 16, he won it in, when he was 17. But As an amateur, because that tennis is what I covered at Reuters through through. Um, so I covered I covered tennis basically from at Reuters and then on at the at the Guardian, and I I, I went to Wimbledon for about 40 years on oh. most Wimbledon for about 40 years. So uh, um, I remember all those uh, great. Uh, I remember the you know the the Borg wins and then the fight of the famous. 33-point tie-break, whatever it was. Yep. McEnroe didn't quite pull it off against Paul. But, um, no. And actually, although I'm not a great fan of tennis, really, I think there are too many boring matches. Um, my favourite, favourite event as a journalist uh, covering things, and I covered the Muhammad Ali fight, England cricket tours, Olympic games, etc., etc. I was the 1975 final when Arthur Ashe beat Jimmy Connors. Ah, yeah. Yeah, it's a funny thing that oh, that was also the first year that they sat down between games. Up until nobody believes this when I tell them. Up until 1975, 
You didn't sit down between games. You went round behind the umpire's chair, had a drink of Robinson's barley water, <laughs> and then and then went to the other end. Nobody sat down. 1975 was the first time they sat down on chairs beside the umpire's chair between games. And also, it was the only time they had on-course betting, as it were, at Wimbledon in 1975. But, but, but um, Ash's win over Connors was spectacular because Connors had been thrashing everyone and he was the sort of puffed-out chess bully boy who was smashing everyone. Arthur Ashe was, was supposed to be the sort of final sacrificial lamb, as it were, but he pulled off this amazing uh, tactic, which he worked out that Connors was a bit of a leech. He, he fed off other people's speed, basically. He was a counterpuncher. And so people thought the thing to do against Connors, you've got to serve, hit the ball really hard so it goes past him or through him. Uh, Ash decided the opposite was um, uh, applicable and started soft-hitting the ball. He just tapped the ball back. And one of the hardest things to do in tennis is create space off a slow pace, off a slow ball. Yeah. And, he, and he destroyed Connors. And at the end, Ash said, he feeds on speed, so I gave him junk. And <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I, have, uh, I have special memories of that 75 final. Oh, I, I think I'll go, as soon as this finishes, uh, I'll go uh, and watch the, the highlights of that, because uh, then came yeah. the Borg-McEnroe uh, yeah. yeah, that's right. But yeah, Arthur Ashe, we know is... The there's a fantastic moment in that match where all Connors' frustration at what was happening comes out. I don't know um, if it's on, on the clips you'll find, but he, when he was losing, I think it was four sets, and when he was looking, so he was definitely going down uh, Connors. Somebody in the crowd shouted out, come on, Jimmy, and Connors turns to that person and he says sort of not in... Anger, he's just in frustration. I'm trying, I'm trying. for Christ. <laughs> <laughs> he had it coming. Um, yeah, and, he did. And I, I, I do hope Wimbledon. Well, Wimbledon will go on uh, this year. I hope it's because uh, it's got a new um, person running it. There's a new All England chairman who is, is a that, woman. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've sort of lost touch with with the, what goes on behind the scenes in tennis. Yeah, it would be a busman's holiday, and you're not paid to care anymore. 